And my sponsor said um, that I have what was called man reliance, which I think is just a nice term for something else. <laughs> and so she said, Stephanie, I think it would be a great idea if you didn't ask men for anything anymore. And I said, okay, what if I need a cigarette? And I swear to God, like these were the thoughts that went through my mind. Just shows you how sick I was. And like, how am I going to get to work? The marvelous idea of like taking the bus was, you know, suggested to me. And like buying my own cigarettes or asking women for cigarettes, you know, but women scared me and I didn't feel like I could manipulate them. But I did what she suggested. What that did was it allowed me to become like an independent woman of God. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Boom shakalaka-laka. Or is it boom shakalaka-laka? Nonetheless, greetings from Studio AA, deep in the heart of Texas. Welcome to this episode number 314 of Sober Speak, and that thar was the voice of Stephanie C. that you heard at the beginning of this episode, and you are really going to enjoy this one. You're going to hear so much more from her in un momento, but first things first, this here episode is brought to you by Donald and David and Anonymous and Audrey and Laura, what you may ask, did the aforementioned do to deserve such a mention? I, that's too many mentions. Aforementioned and mentioned is way too many mentions in one sentence. But nonetheless, what did they do to deserve such recognition on the beginning of this here episode? Well, they went, ladies and gentlemen, to our humble little website that the lovely Mrs. M upkeeps, and they clicked on the little yeller donate tab, and they made a contribution. So thank you so much, Donald and David and Anonymous and Audrey and Laura. This here episode is coming right out to Ewan's. You know, it just occurred to me, I don't know if I've ever talked about why I say yeller, but it was like when I was a a youngster in school, we read Old Yeller. And 
I, I I don't know that that just that just comes to mind, and I don't know if you can hear it right now, but our little Munchkin dog, her name is Maisie, is barking at something in the background, and I don't know what she's trying to to do out there, but you may hear her uh, barking every once in a while. So, um, let's go to something that Mr. Jason posted in the super secret super secret Facebook group. Thank you so much, Jason, for putting this in here. He wrote it's actually a quote from the big excuse me, the twelve and twelve on page eighty eight. He says, For the wise have always known that no one can make much of his life until self searching becomes a regular habit until he is able to admit and accept what he finds and until he patiently and persistently tries to correct what is wrong. And then Jason had a lot of good commentary after that. I'm not going to read all of it, but uh, um, that's what we have several of these folks that are in the super secret Facebook group. They, they put something, usually a quote from the big book or the 12 and 12 or whatever the case may be. And then they put some commentary after it and people just eat it up. If you are not part of that super duper secret Facebook group, go ahead and go to uh, your Facebook application, search up. Sober Speak Secret Group. Not Sober Speak because there's a page for Sober Speak. It's like a business page or whatever the case may be. I don't even know what they call it. I think they call it a business page on Facebook. But search up Sober Speak Secret Group. Ask for admission into the group and we will get you on in there. So let me read that again because I really needed to hear that this week. And once again, this is from the 12 and 12, page 88. It says, for the wise have always known that no one can make much of his life until self-searching becomes a regular habit, until he is able to admit and accept what he finds, and until he patiently and persistently tries to correct what is wrong. Boy, did I need to hear that this week. I'm going through some, I think I've talked about this before, some, some, some job, some career choices issues, but you know, who's not, right? Well, maybe not everybody is, but I know that, you know, I, I, so, I mean, I don't know, half of you or whatever, and this is a, just a guess on my part, are possibly going through the same sort of uh, issues then. But that's why I share it, you know, just so everybody knows, hey, we're, we're, I'm just another bozo on the bus. We're all going through this together, right? For sure. All right, everybody. Now on to Miss Stephanie C., our featured guest of the week. Uh, This was recorded live at a Tri-Cities event here in North Texas. Uh, Stephanie attends the Hang Together or Die Separately group in Dallas and has been sober since May 13th of 2016. Let me read the name of that group again because I love it. It's the, the group is called Hang Together or Die Separately. I love the name of that. Uh, and um, in this episode, or I guess in her talk, I should say, uh, Stephanie talks about going from man 
Reliance, M-A-N Reliance, to becoming an independent woman of God. And that's what we're calling the episode. And I absolutely love that. She also discusses the Hey Mister method of procuring alcohol as a youngster. (laughs) Hey Mister, Uh, the benefits of a blackout. Talks about that. Uh, Stephanie discusses the Cinderella syndrome and exactly what that is. I had never heard of that before. And she talks about the use of Bumble and Tinder to, those are dating apps, just in case you don't know that, uh, to secure a place to sleep at night. <laughs> she worked that system. Uh, So Stephanie's dream was just to have a margarita on the patio on a nice day. And she thought that's not too much to ask, right? But as you know, with folks like us, uh, having a margarita on the patio on a nice day doesn't always turn out to be a happy ending. Uh, She talked about, (laughs) this really got me. I thought this was hilarious. Her experience in picking out black excuse me backsplash after getting sober <laughs> she had <laughs> she had lived a, lived a shelter life and didn't know what backsplash was and she's going i guess this is about being sober anyway uh, she talks about her stay at the 24-hour club in dallas and what a turning point that was but she also discusses some much more serious subjects like dealing with uh, the cps a uh, child protective services uh, psych wards Uh, suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation, trauma, uh, and and victimhood becoming her identity and how she wanted to get and how she learned how to get away from that. She talked about how AA also rallied around her when her husband died of an overdose when she was sober. And you are really going to enjoy this one. Um, make sure that you uh, uh, turn it up real loud. I, why am I saying that turn up? You don't have to turn it up loud. That was just a really silly thing to say. And, you know, I actually could go back and edit that out, but I'm not because it takes too much time. And anyway, you just enjoy Stephanie C. And guess what? We will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this here episode. Enjoy Stephanie. Hi, y'all. I'm Stephanie Crawford. I'm an alcoholic. Hi. Um, I've been sober since May 13th of 2016, um, and I'm super grateful for that. Um, It is an honor and a privilege to be here, and I genuinely mean that. Um, I would not be alive today had it not been for Alcoholics Anonymous and the big book and the 12 steps. Um, So I'm going to pretend like I'm not talking to... 10,000 people that this is supposed to be going out to and just you guys right here. Um, so I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, um, to very young parents. Um, my mom was, um, a senior in high school when she, um, had me and, you know, growing up, I had no idea that like my parents were still children trying to figure things out. Right. Um, cause they were my parents and from an early age, I just felt completely uncomfortable in my own skin. Um, and I don't think my parents could have done anything differently. And I still probably wouldn't have felt like I was loved enough. Um, one of my favorite speakers says, 
I have to be treated special just so I can feel average. And I resonate with that a lot. Um, so, you know, that was ever since I was little. And I longed for something so much greater than me. And I always knew that there was something out there. And I longed for connection. And I heard recently somebody say that addicts and alcoholics are just seeking spirituality. And I don't know if that's true, but I can tell you that, that was true for me. And so I have been a seeker my entire life. Um, I grew up in an atheist household, but something inside me knew that um, to look elsewhere. And so I did um, Pentecostal, Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, Catholic, non-denominational. I mean, you name it, I did it. <laughs> um, so I've done it all trying to like seek this connection with the higher power. And um, I've been told that I would have made a really good cult member. And so if there was a cult, I probably would have joined that too. So um, by the way, AA is not a cult. Um, so if you're new, nothing to worry about there. Um, and I had my first drink when I was about 12 years old. And, um, and it was like everything that I was seeking in church, like I felt immediately, you know, um, I would go to these like different church services and I would feel this high and feel this great connection. But then whenever I would leave, I would have to go back home and go back to, with myself. And so like that would disappear. And, um, when I found alcohol, it was almost like I could have it at any time that I wanted, except for the fact that I was 12 years old and it's very hard for a 12 year old to find alcohol. Um, but I did at that point, you know, I, I remember saying, I never want to be sober again. And, um, and that started my, my drinking career. And by 14 years old, um, I would have qualified to be here. You know, the big book talks about there's two things that make us an alcoholic, right? There's the obsession of the mind and the allergy of the body. And so when I was 14, a freshman in high school or, you know, the summer of eighth grade, and I would go out and, you know, we would do, hey, misters. I don't know if anybody knows what that is, but you go to a gas station, you wait and be like, hey, mister, will you buy us alcohol? Um, and so like that would get our alcohol for the night. And you know, every time I drank, I drank to excess. Um, you know, one of the first times I ended up in the hospital with alcohol poisoning. And I remember my mom thinking, well, there's no way she's going to drink again after this, you know. Um, and she was wrong. I drank again when as soon as I got out. And I did not know that the reason why this was happening was because like my my body reacts differently when I put alcohol in it. And it has done that since I was 14. And, um, and I had this obsession of the mind where, you know, like I didn't intend to go out and get like blacked out, right? Like I didn't intend to go out and make a complete fool out of myself, embarrass myself and wake up, have my boyfriend be mad at me, want to break up with me, embarrassed about what I did. Um, you know, I remember my friends would try to tell me, I'm like, don't, tell me, like, why would you do that to me? <laughs> um, the gift of blackout is you don't have to remember. And so like, I did not like that feeling when I woke up in the morning, right? And so, but I did like the feeling that alcohol gave me, I did like that feeling that alcohol produced. And so, you know, I would write in my journals, and I had a lot of trauma um, from my 
for my home and as a young child. And um, I use that as an excuse to drink a lot. And, um, and because of that trauma, I was in therapy. And so, you know, by 15, I can't even drive yet, but I'm already like writing in my journal about how like, I'm going to control how much I drink this weekend. And this is how, and I'm making these deals with my therapist about, you know, if I can stay sober this weekend, then, you know, we'll work out some sort of reward system, like all of this stuff that like typically like 15 year olds don't really like have to do, um, or adults even, you know, they just don't drink that much. Um, but so like I had that obsession of the mind where, you know, like every single weekend I thought that this, that this time it was going to be different. And I really believed that this time was going to be different. And every single time it was the same. Right. And so that, um, went on. And when I was, um, 19 years old, I met a guy and um, part of my spiritual malady, um, which is how I feel stone cold sober without a program, um, is that I think that like I call it Cinderella syndrome, where I was just like waiting for the right guy to come like take me take care of me and all of my problems would be solved. And so 19 years old, meet this guy, he's 24, which means he's very mature and you know he's like a bartender and like a part-time mortgage broker and he has a car and an apartment and I flunked out of college and I'm living with my parents so um you know he was definitely gonna be the one and um so I meet him and about three months later I find out that I'm pregnant and you know just like any good alcoholic we move right in together and play house. And, um, this was going to be the thing that, um, that saved me. And I remember being pregnant and, um, and just being like, Oh my God, I can't wait to have a glass of wine. Um, and like, just really like fixated on when this baby was going to be born so I could drink again. And then the craziest thing happened is when she was born, like I did not care at all about having a drink again. Um, you know, the big book also talks about this like invisible line that we cross, right? And um, and some of us had quit could quit long ago if we had a sufficient reason. And you know, like while I had that obsession of the mind and this and um, the allergy of the body, I had not passed that line of no return, right? And so suddenly it was just like the only thing that mattered to me was this little girl, and it was like I knew why God created me and it was to be a mother and not only like any mother, but it was to be her mother. And, um, and I still like believe that to be true today. I mean, she would probably tell you something different today because, um, we got in a little bit of fight and she hates me right now, but I really do believe that like God created the two of us to be together. And, um, and so like I, I stopped drinking, I stopped smoking, I stopped doing any of all of that stuff, and my whole focus went to take care of this little baby. And then, um, you know, I remember because I have the spiritual malady, right? I get restless, irritable, and discontent. And, you know, like, I remember, like, I'm going to the gym, and I'm like, and I lost the baby weight, and I'm 22 years old, and I'm just thinking, I'm like, ooh. And, um, you know, all of a sudden, like, that guy is, like, really, um, he's, like, not that hot anymore, you know, and his laugh is really annoying, and, like, I'm 22 years old, and I could do so much better. 
Um, and so, you know, like he's not fixing that internal condition in me, in, in me anymore. And so I break up with him. And then what that does is that frees up every other weekend in two days a week, because we did 50-50 from the start to do whatever I wanted. And, um, and I did what normal people in their early 20s do who are single, is like I went to the bar. And my alcoholism picked up um, right where it left off. And I went down quick. Um, you know, I started coming into the rooms of recovery at 22, and I didn't get sober until I was 27. And so that is five years of trying to manage this thing and trying to stay sober. And, um, and I remember when I first started coming into the rooms, I would see the, and my, my daughter would come with me and she was like my little sidekick and she was the cutest thing and she was so good. And I remember like being completely judgmental of these parents that I saw who like didn't have their kids or who had CPS involved or who were living at halfway houses with their babies and just being like completely judgmental and thinking that like, I would never get that bad. And how can you not stop for your kids? I mean, look at me, I'm here as a mother um, because I love my daughter and I don't want to get that bad. Right. Um, and what I didn't understand at the time was this idea of like losing the power of choice. Right. Um, and I didn't understand at the time, like that these women, had no choice, right? Um, until I had to experience it firsthand. And so I'm going to fast forward um, to paint a picture of what it looked like towards the end before the end. And I'm living in this townhouse, this two-bedroom townhouse. It's me and my daughter. She's in kindergarten. And, you know, I'm working for this company that's a re respected company. Everything's great. Um, and within a matter like of months, um, you know, I lose a job. I can't hold a job. Um, I can't even get my daughter to school because she's coming down in the morning trying to wake me up and I'm passed out in the chair with a bottle of wine in one hand and a bottle of pills in the other. And she can't even wake me up. Like I can't even get my five-year-old daughter to school. And, um, and this little girl who was just the sweetest thing has to start trying to take care of her mom. And, um, and I remember one time, you know, CPS came to my house, um, because it was probably obvious at school that she was being neglected because that's the truth that she was being neglected. And, um, CPS came to my house and, um, I didn't even have the electricity on. Like I was like sleeping, like I was a squatter in my own home is basically what I was, meaning like I didn't have furniture because I sold it all. Um, I didn't have any electricity on. I didn't have food in the fridge, but I did have beer and wine in the fridge. Um, you know, when I ran out of my own things to sell, I started selling my daughter's belongings and I started stealing from her piggy bank. And, you know, like while that might be... Um, very hard to hear and very hard to say like that is the truth about my alcoholism and and that is where my alcoholism takes me is to a point where I will steal from my own daughter and CPS comes to my house and you know um my daughter is visiting her dad in Texas and uh and for some reason I don't know why they bought my lie I played up that struggling single mom card hard 
Um, and they bought it, you know? And so the only thing I had to do was get the electricity turned back on. Um, and I couldn't even do that. Like I couldn't even get the electric on to not get my daughter taken from me because I could not spend money on anything else without having something to change the way that I feel first. And so, um, my daughter ended up moving to Texas and her dad drove up from Little Elm. Hi, um, you guys are here. Uh, from Little Elm, Texas, um, to pick her up. And, you know, I saw her drive away and I was thinking that I was going to see her again um, in about a month. And I probably didn't see her again for another year or more. And so um, I end up in Texas because. Um, after about a year of couch surfing and everything else and being this an abusive relationship, um, there was one night where I, um, came to in a bathroom and there's a reason why I'm trying to say I come to in a bathroom and I have blood all over me. And it was just like this abusive relationship had gone really bad, really fast. And I remember thinking like, I'm never going to see my daughter again. I'm never going to see my daughter again because this man is going to kill me. And, um, and I made a deal with God that night. And I said, God, if you let me live, I will leave him. And so, um, that was the last time that I escaped. Um, and as after a series of circumstances, I bought a one-way ticket on a mega bus and came to Dallas, Texas. I had a bag packed and that was about it. Um, at this point I was already like pretty homeless anyways, besides like living with this guy. And, um, and so I was able to get a bag and head down to Dallas, Texas. And, you know, I had no idea what I was going to do when I got down here. Um, I didn't know anyone here. I tried calling battered women shelters, but, um, couldn't get into any of those. You know, they like mentioned that you had to be sober and, um, and also pass a drug test. And I couldn't do either of those. And, um, but like at that point, it was like, I knew that like if I had any chance of seeing my daughter again, like I had to get to Texas, you know, and I was like, I'm already homeless in Missouri. If I'm going to be homeless, I'm going to be homeless near her. And the reason why I share that is because like, if I think about all the things that I've done that I've done in my life, probably one of the most courageous things that I've ever done and the bravest things I've ever done was leave the only place that I ever knew to come to a state. Like I really thought that there was going to be like horses and like saloons and cowboy hats. Um, and it wasn't like that at all, obviously. But so like, I literally had no idea what I was going to, what it was going to be like when I got here, but I did all that just to be able to see my daughter again. Um, but I, I fought so hard, um, to, to be with her and to, and to get her back. And the one thing that I could not do, and it was the only thing that I had to do to see her was to stay sober. And like, I could not do that. And so when I think of powerlessness and what that looks like, that is absolutely what that looks like for me is if there's one human power that should be able for me to stay sober for, it should be able to be my daughter. And I can't even do that. Um, so I got down here in um, January of 2016. 
my sobriety date is May of 2016. So I, um, I definitely, you know, um, got to experience what Texas has to offer as far as alcoholism goes. And, um, and I'm just going to share this one story because people think it's funny. So maybe you guys will too, but you know, people are like, Oh my God, like, what'd you do? Did you have to like stay on the streets? Like, how'd you do that? And so like one of my hustles, um, was I had this phone, um, that I could connect to Wi-Fi, but didn't have data or anything because, well, I couldn't even afford to put, turn a phone on. Um, but I would go to like Jack in the Box or McDonald's or something. And I would connect to this Wi-Fi and I would get on the dating apps. This was before Hinge. So it was Bumble and Tinder. And I would swipe until I finally connected with the guy that was willing to meet me that night. And so that would be my place to stay and my alcohol and anything else that I needed. And then you'd be very surprised how many guys will just let you kind of come on in and never leave. And so (laughs) I did that a lot. Um, And, you know, so just there's anybody in here, me and somebody on Tinder, just make sure it's not homeless first, okay? Um, And so... That does get tiring, um, you know, like trying to figure out every night where you're going to sleep and where you're going to stay and how to keep this person from being mad at you, from kicking you out. Um, I was so entitled um, when I just think back to that. Like, you want me to pay rent? But, like, you have me. Like, that. I, you know, like I just thought that, like, he should just be totally grateful for my existence near him, you know? Um, so gross, but that's just who I was. Um, and so that gets very tiring, right? And, um, and I end up um, at this place called the 24-Hour Club, um, and it was after just another night of doing the same thing where I have every intention of going to get sober going to get help I didn't know there was like such places like treatment centers or anything like that so I did a lot of psych wards um and so it was like another trip to Green Oaks and um you know I was like thinking that like this is going to be it um but I passed the shops of legacy and I see people drinking with impunity out and they're having a margarita on the patio and that was like my greatest obsession is that I just wanted to have a margarita on the patio on a nice day and nice days used to really make me angry because I was so mad that like I couldn't do that um and so like I thought that I was just gonna have one margarita and because I have that allergy it sets it off and you know, I'm coming, it's, I'm coming down from other stuff in some dude's apartment that I don't know, wondering how did I get here again, you know, and, um, and it's like, I'm at that jumping off point where, you know, to continue, to continue on drinking the way that I am, um, sounds absolutely horrible and scary, but trying to be sober sounds equally scary. Because in the five years that I was in and out, the only honest chip I ever picked up was 30 days. That doesn't mean that I didn't pick up other chips because I did, um, but I was drinking when I was doing that. Um, And so I could never even make it to 60 days. And when I was sober, I was miserable. And so like both of those options sounded scary and I thought that the only thing for me to do was to end my life. And I really thought that my daughter would be better off without me. 
you know, that like she could just grow up and I could be the hero that she remembered me as instead of her having to grow up with a drunk for a mother, you know? Um, and luckily God intervened and I ended up at the 24 hour club and, and that's when my spiritual experience and everything started to happen. Right. I remember seeing all these people and they were, um, you know, they were so happy. And, um, if you know anything about the 24 hour club, the old building, it wasn't very nice. Um, there was bed bugs, um, like a possum fell through the ceiling of the meeting room one time. I think, uh, you know, just like stuff like that. It was just, but like I felt safe, you know, um, which I hadn't felt in a very long time. And there was people happy and they were talking about the obsession being removed. And I didn't know anything about that, what that was like. And they were talking about like a spiritual awakening. And I remember like asking like, what's a spiritual awakening? How do I get one of those? And, you know, and they would tell me like, um, that it was a personality change and, you know, that I had to work the steps. And so I, uh, landed there on May 5th of 2016. My sobriety day is May 13th. So obviously I drank again. Okay. Um, but what happened was my last spree was only one day. Um, thank God the people who lived there drug me back there and were just like, just pass out, just pass out. Cause I was ready to go on another spree and like move to Corsicana with some guy that I just met, you know? And so like, thank God that they did that. Um, and I woke up the next day and, you know, of course the program manager comes in because, um, you know, somebody quote unquote snitched on me. That's the way I thought of it at the time. And, um, he comes in and he accuses me of drinking. And of course I deny it. And we're going back and forth. And like, suddenly, like, I just, like, I start crying. Um, and like, I can't lie anymore. And here's the thing is I was planning on doing that again, that day that I woke up, like when May 13th, I had no intention of getting sober. I thought I had gotten away with it and I planned on doing it again. And so, um, thank God that that person did what they did. Right. And, um, and so, you know, I just finally like break down and he says, Stephanie, if you can stay sober for 72 hours, we'll hold your bed. And, um, I think that's whenever I really like for the first time, like fully conceded to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic, um, because it was that point in time that I really, really genuinely wanted to, um, but I also really didn't know if I could, you know, and I'm crying and I'm just like, I just don't think this is for me. I just don't think I can do this. And, you know, um, and he said, Stephanie, that breaks my heart because this is a beautiful life. And that is something that spoke to me because I could tell that he meant it. And he started telling me about these things that like God had done in his life. And he had only been sober for 11 months. Right. And so there was two things that happened in that is that he told me that he lived a beautiful life and I knew nothing about what a beautiful life was. Right. I didn't care about being sober, but like I wanted a taste of, of that. Um, and the other thing that he did for me is he showed me that I didn't have to wait an entire year to start feeling better. Um, because that was a, the other misconception that I had is if I just held on real tight and was able to stay sober for a year, then maybe I could get better. The problem is that I can't even make it to 60 days doing that, right? Um, and so they introduced me to my sponsor in the parking lot, 
And, um, and she's this beautiful blonde, so kind, and she's smiling at me, and, you know, she's like, I'll sponsor you, and I'm like, oh, my God, but what about the steps? You know, like, I can't stay sober long enough to work the steps. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? And, um, and I'm so grateful that this woman saw me as an individual and, like, met me where I was and saw me in my brokenness because what she did with me is not typical of sponsors. It's not even typical of what I do with sponsees. I've never done this before. But she took me through the first three steps within two seconds of meeting her right there in the parking lot right there um, because she knew that I needed to take some action and she also needed to show me that like I could start taking action now. you know. And I'm so grateful that she didn't say, hey, read these pages and then call me tomorrow. You know, which is fine. People do that, right? Um, and I don't think that there has to be a certain way that we do the steps, although I think the big book is great. Um, but like, I don't think that like, you know, they're like God, you know, we don't have a monopoly on God, right? And so I think God is so much bigger than the rigidity that I can put on him sometimes, right? And um, and so step one was easy. Step two um, was really just like, can you believe that would work for me? What would work for you? And I thought, well, and I really was like, I don't know, you know, I'm pretty bad. Um, and she was like, you know, out of thousands and thousands of alcoholics that this thing has worked for, you don't think it could possibly work for you? And I said, well, maybe. And she's like, that's fine. Um, and so, you know, then we then step three was just, you know, um, told to me at the time that it was a continue. It was I was going to continue to um, continue on with the rest of the steps, right? And while if you read the big book, there's a lot more that that's talked about with step two and and um, and step three, right? Um, and but it's all about like these internal requirements, right? Like being willing to believe, laying aside prejudice, being convinced that my life run on self will could hardly be a success, you know, being surrendered, right? Like I had all those internal requirements that the big book talks about, although at the time I didn't know that. Um, and I remember she said, all right, well, I'm going to, um, go pick up my kids and, oh, you're going to have to do the third step prayer. Okay. Shannon, come here, Shannon. You're going to do the third step prayer with Shannon. Okay. I had never met Shannon. Um, and so, but I saw her, you know, walk away and I just remember thinking like what I would do to be able to pick up my daughter from school, you know, like this woman is getting into a car that she owns to pick up her kids from school. And so if that means I have to do something that I have no idea what I'm doing or what it means or anything, like I'm going to do it. And so I did my third step prayer on the side of the building of the 24-hour club with the woman I didn't know saying words that I didn't know what they meant. Um, and I started writing inventory that day. And, um, you know, and what the inventory, I had so much just like justified anger and resentment. And I lived in this victimhood, right? And I remember being like, oh, this is so great. She's going to, like, understand why I drink. Um, and she's going to have to, like, listen to me. Um, and, like, I'm, my feelings are going to be validated. And, you know, like, that's not what happened at all in my fist step. Um, which, thank God. Um, because, like, I, my, vic like, my trauma and, like, my, my victimhood, like, became my identity, right? And, um, and, like, while I know today that, like, I had every reason to be angry, I had no luxury to be angry, right? Um, and so, like, thank God she didn't do that. Because while I was thinking that she was going to be, like, I don't know, 
validating my feelings, I guess. She like didn't even say anything at all um, and just wrote down character defects instead. And, um, and Chad just like, what that did was like, it deflated the ego, right? Um, and when the ego is deflated, like it makes room for God. And like, that's the only way that I can explain it. And, um, and God, who is like all love, um, pushed out all of that hatred and anger and everything that I had in my heart. And so I do the hour outside of the 24 hour club and um and for the first time i feel this forgiveness for my mother um because i had blamed her for everything for my trauma why i was the way that i was everything i planned on never talking to her again um for the first time you know i can see cadence's dad and stepmom as not the people who are like keeping my daughter from me but like taking care of my daughter right um and because of because my perception changed like my relationship could change, right? And I started that the process that the big book talks about of the long period of reconstruction ahead, right? Um, and because of that, I was able to make amends um, to her dad and start that relationship. I was able to make amends to my mom, something I thought I would never do. And then the other thing that I got to do is I, I really got to look at um, the sex conduct piece of the inventory and my sponsor said um, that I have what was called man reliance, which I think is just a nice term for something else. Um, and so she said, um, Stephanie, I think it would be a great idea if you didn't ask men for anything anymore. And I said, okay, um, what if I need a cigarette? And, and I swear to God, like these were the thoughts that went through my mind. Um, it just shows you how sick I was. Um, and like, how am I going to get to work? And like, you know, the marvelous idea of like taking the bus was, you know, suggested to me and like buying my own cigarettes or asking women for cigarettes, you know, but women scared me and I didn't feel like I could manipulate them. And so like, but I did what she suggested. And like what that did was it allowed me to become like an independent woman of God, right? Um, and through living in 10, 11, and 12, and, you know, sponsoring, having a home group, and being sponsored, um, which means utilizing a sponsor, um, I've been able to stay sober and, and create, like, a beautiful life for myself. My first uh, sober job was a cashier at Torchy's Tacos. Um, and I don't do that anymore. Um, I like have a job where, um, you know, like I'm valued as an employee and I'm like actually been sought out to workplaces and like I can negotiate salaries and like get promoted. Like those were ideas that like were just completely far-fetched for me, honestly. Like I just, I didn't feel like I was smart. I didn't feel like I had any value. I didn't feel like I had anything to offer the world, right? And so the fact that like, I've gone from Torchy's Tacos to that is like just a miracle and like could not happen without the program, right? Um, you know, I was homeless, I'm not homeless anymore. Um, and, you know, I want to like share some things that have happened in my sobriety and what Alcoholics has done for me since I've gotten sober. Um, when I was about a year or two sober, I met a guy um, in the rooms and we, um, we're getting a house built in the suburbs. And, you know, I was like a homeless person. 
Um, and now like I'm picking out backsplash. Like I didn't even know what backsplash was. Um, you know, like I didn't grow up with a lot of money either. And so it was just like, like I felt like, you know, I like I had it all right. Um, and so as this is happening, the thing that I thought would never happen was he ended up relapsing. And so, you know, I go from like having it all, um, to having to completely start over. Um, I was a stay at home mom, all of that. I had to figure out where I was going to live, where I was going to work, how I was going to take care of my kids. And, um, and I remember having my son and, um, and taking him to these meetings with me and like the women, I was going to Chicago group at the time, but the women of Chicago group, um, they like took turns, like taking care of my son as like an unofficial service position. So I could have a meeting, you know? Um, and there's people who are in this room who completely dropped what they were doing to move me into this, from this big house that I was living in to this tiny townhome that my sister's friends called the ghetto. Um, I didn't think it was ghetto because I've seen the ghetto, but (laughs) they thought it was, um, you know? And so I'm like doing the things that I thought I would never be able to do. And like the people of Alcoholics Anonymous are helping me do it. And, um, he ends up getting sober again. And about six months later, you know, like, I'm thinking, well, maybe we can make this work. Um, He's starting to see Wesley again. And um, two guys show up at my house, and they um, let me know that he had overdosed in the the bedroom of his Oxford house. Um, I didn't even know that he had relapsed again. And what happened that night was that I had a house full of, of women the women that I were afraid to talk to, the women that, like, I felt like, you know, like, I couldn't really get in with because, you know, like, I didn't know how to have, like, true, authentic relationships. Like, my house was filled with women who just, like, sat there with me while I cried and sat there with disbelief. And, um, you know, and, like, I remember for, like, two weeks, I had, like, an inner circle of girls who just, like, rotated to make sure that, like, I wasn't alone. Um and there's somebody in this room who is also there for that. And they cleaned my house and they took, they picked up my kids from school and they like brought me groceries. And there was a GoFundMe started that was just like the amount of money that was raised was insane. Like I didn't even know like people really liked me. Um, but like the fact that they were willing to help, um, not just like because they knew me or because they knew Isaac, but like because like the type of people that Alcoholics Anonymous creates are the type of people who like completely give of themselves to others, right? Um, I've been this has been a whole thing for me lately, but the big book talks about like self-sacrifice for others is is what's gonna help us when like nothing like is what's gonna help us grow our relationship with God and and grow in our spirituality, right? Is it and so like Alcoholics Anonymous creates people who are willing to self-sacrifice for others. Um, And I'm so grateful that those people did that for me. And I remember, you know, like at his funeral and everything else, it was like filled with people um, from AA and another fellowship. And they were just saying, you know, like, 
Um, I remember you guys coming to Turtle Creek to carry the message. I remember him from the Addison meeting. He was the first one that took me through the steps and like all of this stuff, all of the hundreds and hundreds of people that he helped, like that's the legacy that he can leave for his son, right? Um, and the other thing that AA had taught me was that when things are going great is when I should be practicing this stuff the most, right? Um, because when Isaac died, um, I had already set up, I had a sponsee that was getting ready to go on an amends trip. And I had already had a meeting scheduled with her before he died, right? And so, you know, it's three days after he died and I'm meeting with a sponsee. And, um, and like, I, I knew to do those things because my feet had been trained for all of the times I was doing those things when things were going well. Right. And I remember meeting with that sponsee and like, um, just crying and like thanking God for that opportunity to like be there with her and him and not have to think about anything else. And I know my sponsees were like not wanting to bother me and all that stuff. But what they didn't know is like, it's, and it's so cliche, but I can't like, it is absolutely 100% so true. And I mean, this is that like, that's when we need them the most, you know? And like, that's when they helped me the most. And, um, and I just remember being so angry at God and not wanting to see a big book because, you know, how can other people come into AA and not have to do anything and they get to stay sober? And, you know, and I, I just, like, I didn't want to carry the message, like, nothing. And I remember the first time, like, I had to carry the message, like, reluctantly. Um, I cried again. <laughs> I cry. Um, I cried again because, like, I could not imagine my life without it, Right. Um, and so that was three years ago. My son is four. And, um, and so since then, you know, um, I have, you know, met somebody else, um, and engaged to be married. And, you know, the thing that I, um, that I thought I was so scared when Wesley, um, when Isaac died for Wesley about like, who was going to do the things for him, like teach him how to throw a ball you know, um, and just recently, like I got to watch my son throwing a ball with my fiance, you know, those like little things that like, I, I didn't think were going to happen. And, um, and I've gotten to see them happen. Right. My daughter is 15. Now it took about a year and a half before she was allowed to stay the night at my house. Um, so, you know, I had a lot of work to do and I, um, did what the big book suggested was I just stopped fighting it. Right. Um, and I trusted that like, if God can do this wonderful thing, which was remove the obsession, like, why shouldn't I trust him with this area of my life? Right. And so, you know, like, I wish I could sit here and tell you that like, oh my God, we have the best relationship. If it was yesterday, I probably would have told you that. Um, <laughs> But, you know, like the reality is, is like, you know, she's, um, she's 15 and like, sometimes she hates me. And today was one of those days. And, um, you know, and like, and I can get, um, in a place where I just, I start to become ungrateful again, right? I start to forget how badly I just wanted another chance to be able to take her to school, Right. Um, and I start to get bothered with uh, the responsibilities of life, a.k.a. the gifts of the program, you know. 
Um, and so it's like having things like this um, that are already in place that are able to get me um, to the point where I'm regrounded and I'm recentered and I get to remember why I'm even able to show up for her in the first place and why I'm able and able to do any of that in the first place. And that is ultimately, absolutely, 100% because of the spiritual, I, the spiritual awakening that I had that connected me to a power greater than myself, which I call God. Um, and you know, the fellowship is great. Um, the service part is absolutely wonderful. Um, you know, but if I can leave on anything, you know, there was something that my sponsor said to me. Um, she said to me like way early on was that your relationship with God, um, is absolutely everything, you know, because there's going to be one, there's going to be a time where your sponsor, where your sponsor can't get on the phone. There's no page in the big book that you can turn to. There's no meeting that you can get to. There's no service work that you can do. And the only thing that you're going to have left is your relationship with God. Right. And while that sounds like daunting and scary and like, how do I do that? Like the big book illustrates it. So as so well, and it's why 10, 11, and 12 are so important, right? Because that gets me to the place of when that one thing happens, right? Like I'm already connected. Um, and so I'm super grateful. I just celebrated seven years. And, um, you know, I thank you. Um, and the fact that, um, you know, somebody who couldn't even stay sober for 60 days and got pissed off on a, on a nice day because it meant that I couldn't have a margarita and I'm like sober and like nice days like make me happy now. And I don't even think about how I don't get to have a margarita, you know, like that is an absolute um, miracle. And so I'm just so happy to be here with you guys and thank you. And that's all that I have. Once again, thank you, Stephanie C. What an incredible and impactful message. I know that the listeners out there are going to get so much out of that talk. Uh, I appreciate you letting me record you and uh, uh, sharing this with the listeners that are out there. If you are out there and you thought to yourself, I have a friend or a family member that may need to, that that needs to hear that message. Go ahead and pause your device, click that little share button, and send it on over to that friend or family member. It may be just what they need today. Now, well, before I go on to listener feedback, uh, who out there has touched your life? Uh, in a recovery sense, I guess I should say, or just in general, right? Who is out there who has touched your life? Who is your, oh, they call them a, a Eskimo, right? Is there somebody that has helped you along? Somebody that helped you get sober? Maybe it's a sponsor. Maybe it's a just somebody in the meeting who said a nice word at some point in time. Uh, maybe it was uh, somebody that you called on the phone at the uh, uh, inner group. Maybe it, it could be anything. If there's someone out there who has touched your heart and you want to give them a little love via the airwaves 
go ahead and write me at john j-o-h-n at soberspeak.com and uh, uh assuming that it is appropriate <laughs> we will get it read uh during uh listener feedback and you could tell them to uh tune in and listen to me read about them now, on to a little bit of a listener feedback. I hope I am getting this name correctly. It is Fiatra writes in, F-I-A-C-H-R-A. I am probably bastardizing that, but I'm sorry. Uh, they say, hey, John M., a big thank you for accepting me as part of your Facebook group. Are you kidding me, Fiatra? It is my pleasure uh, it, the pleasure is all ours, however you say that, right? Anyway, I'm glad you're in there. She says, I am from Limerick in the west of Ireland. So is this the place where those Limericks come from? Did it, did it, is this where, uh, and is the Limerick the thing where you go, there once was a man from Nantucket? <laughs> And then you start to kind of fill in the blanks. I think that's what a limerick is, but you know, my English is not fantastic, right? And I didn't do fantastic in school. So that could be just kind of like one piece of information stuck in the back of my head. But I was pretty good with their, with the, <laughs> there once was a man from Nantucket, but I will, I will, I will spare you that uh, talent of mine. Anyway, uh, so anyway, uh, uh, they, and by the way, is that a, is that a he or a she? I'm so sorry. I can't remember. Um, I think it's a she, Fiatra, uh, but I'm not completely, completely sure. So anyway, uh, she, we think says I'm an alcoholic. So she's from the West of Ireland. I'm an alcoholic. By the way, I understand Fiatra that, uh, my friend Bill C tells me that, Ireland is the birthplace of alcoholism. Now, I can't confirm that, <laughs> but, but I would imagine the percentage hits over 10%. <laughs> but anyway, uh, she says, uh, I'm an alcoholic with two years and eight months of sober time. I've recently taken up a GSR position with my home group and came across your site after I Googled something to do with the traditions. I was delighted and hugely grateful to you for uh, all for taking the time and considerable effort to publish so much useful, uh, informative content. That sums up our fellowship, really. Thanks again, John M., and I look forward to being part of the group. Yours in fellowship, Fiatra. It could be a Fiatra. I bet it's Fiatra. Anyway, uh, thank you, Fiatra, for writing in. I sure do appreciate you and... Uh, Hopefully, gosh, I would love to get over there. You know, my my roots are in Scotland. My mom was from uh, Glasgow, and um, I, I went back there a couple times as a kid. But I need to get back over to uh, Ireland and Scotland, and uh, while I'm while I can, you know, uh, it'd be really cool. But anyway, thanks for writing in. Susan writes in and she said, Oh, I remember this one. Yes, I forgot. So the, the, oh, yes, this is very interesting. You want to listen to this one. Susan B wrote in and she wrote, AA is actually 
a cut, a, a cult, excuse me, C-U-L-T, cult. She says, run it through the bite model in its capital letters b-i-t-e now a very good podcaster probably would have gone and looked that up and see what the bite model is i don't know what the bite model is but i'm sure some of you out there know uh, knows uh, uh, what they are but anyway she says aa is a cult uh, running through the bite model she says alcoholism is not a disease there are methods that have proved to be effective when treating AUD. And I believe AUD, and I'm not a doctor here. I think that's alcohol use disorder. And then she says, the big book needs to be updated because we have made significant or we have made the scientific advancements they say don't exist. Uh, We've learned most AUD slash SUD cases are related to trauma, uh, S, that could be sexual use disorder. No, I say, uh, oh, I bet a substance use disorder is what that is. Hey, my mind <laughs> goes to the, you know, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> anyway, and then she says, uh, this AA is a religious cult and everyone knows it. She says, I'm sure you do on some level, John, but like me for the last, oh, she didn't say, she didn't put John in there, but, but anyway, she says like me for the past 15 years, you're too afraid to acknowledge it. So, and then, and that was it. So she did live an email. A lot of times when I get stuff like that, people don't leave emails or numbers or anything like that. And so, um, I just decided to, I wanted to write back to her, right? And so here's me writing back. I says, hi, Susan, thanks for your email. I realize different people have different viewpoints. And then I said, are you addressing me? Uh, question mark. I'm John M host of the podcast. Cause she really didn't say, uh, she, she, she didn't address anybody. She was, she was just kind of, you know, saying her her viewpoint and i didn't even know if she'd i'm assuming she listened to the podcast i don't know but anyway i says tell me about yourself what has helped you keep sober and, and you know i'm assuming it's something she's tried a method that's utilized the the bite method or whatever it's called and it says i realize there are different ways to get and maintain sober living and then i said and i'm curious what uh and I'm curious as to what prompted you to listen to the podcast. You know, you just kind of wonder, I, why are they listening to the podcast uh, or even going to the site or whatever if if this is not their cup of tea? And then I said, P.S., would you like me to add your email to the list? I definitely don't want to receive something you, I don't want you receiving something you're not interested in. So, um, I, the, the reason, so I, I just wanted you to see the exchange and I've given it a couple of weeks for Susan. I'm assuming that's a real name. I, it could be a guy, could be a gal, could be a, a, a cinnamon. I don't know. Um, but I given it a couple of weeks before I read this cause I was hoping that she would reply to me again, but Susan, if you're out there and you're listening, feel free to reply to my email. Uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about you. You know, everyone's got their different view and, and that's okay. All right. Uh, oh, okay. So here is uh, an email I am going to leave out 
the name. Okay, because um, let me just read it. Uh, She says, hello there. My name is so-and-so. I'm shaking even writing this. I know I need to reach out to someone or I may never again. I have been a closet drinker the past three years, which has been scaring myself. Then she talked about the the uh, episode from Andy V. If you haven't heard those two episodes, go back. Uh, they're really worth it. She says, Andy V, the Andy V message really moved me. She is telling my story. I'm a, it's a profession uh, who is loved in my community. People would never know that I close my doors and sulk in pain. I used to, to teach exercise uh, fitness connection. I used to be so healthy and now, and now I don't know who I am. I live in such and such and I'm looking for support, uh, for some support. Is there any way I could have a strong woman to help me desperate? I need to change and I'll leave out the name. And so I got that lady in touch with Andy, and Andy has been working with her. Uh, I, I I don't know really where it's gone, but uh, I'm so glad you wrote in, and uh, uh, I think you're going to be an inspiration for others with me reading this. Um, if you are out there and you need to reach out to someone, and you're a closet drinker, even if you're not a closet drinker, um, you know we. Uh, I, a lot of times I just act as a, as a matchmaker, right? Um, let me know if there's one of the speakers you want to talk to or excuse me, the, the speakers, the slash guest, and, uh, I'll do my best to get you in touch with them. If I can't get you in touch with them, we can get you in touch with somebody else, but, uh, God bless you. I'm so glad that you wrote in and I'm so glad that you and Andy were able to communicate. Jennifer writes in and the subject line is thanks to once again, Andy V. And by the way, if you're looking for that and, and you don't know who Andy V is, it's A-N-D-I. Uh, it's a female Andy. And she says, my first time ever listening to the podcast and Andy's story gave me so much hope. I'm closing in on nine months of sobriety and hitting a rough patch. Boy, do I understand that, Jennifer. She said, I need to I needed something this morning and I couldn't make a meeting until tonight. Andy's story lifted my spirits and her wisdom and shed some light on my path. God is good. Big clapping hands and big heart. And thank you. And Jen K. Thanks, Jen K. I appreciate you writing in. I'm glad uh, that Andy was able to uplift your spirits. David writes in and he says, uh, Dear John, I am a Brit naturalized in Australia, living in Sydney, uh, and I visit the USA often, and I've been sober since January of 1989. I met Alan B., on an LAX to Sydney flight a few years ago, and we became friends. Yeah, I'm for those he knows it, but I, uh, uh, Alan V has been on the podcast several times before. And anyway, uh, David says, I'm a fifth generation pearl dealer, and I love travel, NAA, and Alan sent me your podcast, so I was happy to listen in for the first time to your interview with him, which was pretty heart-wrenching, having met his family at home in California a few years ago. If you've not heard the latest episode with Alan B., 
Man, that is one of the most heart-wrenching stories we have ever had. Anyway, David says, wishing you all blessings from the land down under. All the best, David. What's that song? From the land down under, uh, where women and men thunder, or whatever it is. But you know what I'm talking about. There's that that one Australian song that talks about um, the land down under. David, I'm so glad you wrote in, my friend, and I'm so glad to have met you. Hope, hopefully we get to meet eyeball to eyeball here one of these days in the future. But thank you for writing in. Corliss writes in, and Corliss says, Hey, John M., I just wanted to tell you, thank you so much for your podcast and your service to our beautiful fellowship. It is a beautiful fellowship, Corliss. Uh, and they say, I was let go from my previous job about five months ago after nine years and got my next assignment only one month after. Well, good for you. Uh, man, I understand those job struggles. I really do. Anyway, Corliss says, uh, uh, it was a bit further drive, uh, oh, for the next assignment than what I had been used to. So I decided to start listening to podcast. Uh, I gathered some information from my AA friends on how to proceed, and I found yours right off the bat. And I'm so very grateful that I did. It's been just amazing. I can totally relate to you. And when you sometimes go off the rails or say a word and get get sidetracked and just find myself (laughs) laughing out loud with you... (laughs) Well, good, Corliss. Hopefully, this is one of those times. Uh, uh, and I, I, Corliss, I think Corliss is. I'm so sorry. I uh, is. I think Corliss is a man, and he says my sobriety date is much like on the Family Feud. I'm gonna start doing that. I think every time my sobriety date is three twenty five of two thousand eleven, and for that. I am so very grateful. I was facing 10 to 99 uh, three times, and God gave me a miracle. I ended up having a big trial. The judge was ch- the judge changed his mind at the last second, amongst other variables, all God orchestrated, and he blessed me with two years uh, treatment facility, which was the... Senecor Foundation in Fort Worth and 10 years probation, which I completed in August of 2021. Thank you, Father. Uh, and then he says, at Senecor, they required us just to attend meetings about a year into it. And I was so very grateful because I knew that AA was going to be a part of my life. I have been going ever since. I have a sponsor and I have the privilege of being a sponsor. I am a member of the Glass House Group in Fort Worth, Texas, and I reside in the Richland Hills area. Yeah, so the Glass House Group, I believe, if I remember right, that's where, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? Uh, he was like a, a, a Clancy, not not Clancy sponsor, but... Uh, Oh, uh, he, I think he was Evie's sponsor for a while, if I'm not mistaken, but I can't remember his name right now. I'm so sorry. But anyway, he says, I'm grateful for this daily reprieve today and that I 
get to. Thank you, John, for this podcast and your service. And if you are ever in the Fort Worth area, please come on by and visit us. Much love and much gratitude one day at a time, Corliss B. And let me say this, if you are ever in the Frisco area, you want to come visit us, please let me know. Uh, I'll do my best to meet you there, but thank you, Corliss. And uh, if I'm ever out there in Fort Worth at the Glasshouse Group, I'll give you a a shout out. And finally, last but not least, um, Kev, Kevin, excuse me, Kevin DMs on the Instagram. He says, hi, John from not so sunny Scotland. Thank you for your service. I really enjoy the podcast. It helps me keep sober and learn from the speakers. I'm five months sober, and after a period of homelessness prior to sobriety, I am on the right track now. I'm doing service, attending meetings, and working with a great sponsor who has taken me through the program. Best wishes, Kevin M. in Dundee, Scotland. Well, hello. Wait a second, I went from like uh, Scotland uh, to a uh, more of a, I think, uh, an Australian accent. But nonetheless, thanks for writing, uh, Kevin M. Uh, as I've said before, and I told you, my mom, my mom was from uh, Glasgow, and uh, I hope to get back over there someday. I think I was saying that a little earlier uh, with somebody who's from Ireland. Plenty of listener feedback. All right, everybody, that thar. It's another episode of Sober Speak. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Appreciate ya. Uh, may God bless you and keep you until then and keep coming back. Uh, it works if you work it. And uh, take this one week at a time. I hope to be back next week. Love you guys. Bye-bye.